Welcome to Stories of Recovery, a podcast from Mar Addiction Treatment Centers in Atlanta. I'm your host, Matt Shedd. As Brian's career as a dentist began, his drug addiction was worsening. It was now to the point where he couldn't hide it anymore from his supervisor. This set his life onto a course where he felt compelled to seek help at Mar. This decision led to a life that he claims was better than he could imagine. We talk about the buildup of his addiction and what his recovery looked like when he started at Mar. So I was a practicing dentist in my first few years. My life had kind of been slowly spiraling for a couple of years, and that kind of came to a head when my employer at the time actually did some knew someone in recovery, a dentist in the in recovery, and he kind of told him about me. And uh, he was like, "Yeah, he sounds like a drug addict." Um, and yeah, uh, he. Yeah, he had an intervention with me, which was, you're fired, and also, uh, you need to get help, and I need to know that you're going to get help, um, otherwise we'll take a different course, and I really think you need to go to this place, and he had talked, he got me in touch with, um, uh, actually Jane Walter, who runs the Georgia DRN for dentists, and then they got me hooked up with Mar. Wow. So how long had that been going on for? A couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, before that, it was, uh, in dental school, I got prescribed Adderall for ADD. I'd taken Adderall before, like you get it from somebody here and there for a big test. And as soon as they gave me a prescription is when I would say like things kind of took off for me. Cause I felt like I, I was just like, Oh, I can, I have a, in my, in my mind, I had an endless supply of juice for myself which was for me it was always to be more confident more productive like I wanted to be very functional and so that was like an aha kind of drug for me where it made me feel like it kind of wiped away my insecurities um really it just gave me a huge dose of ego which was worked for a while and then until it (laughs) until it started making my life more and more unmanageable so yeah a lot of prescription drug use by prescription and then, you know, getting it from people and then like it sort of morphed into um, taking it into my own hands. And then, um, but through like my college years, drinking and, you know, recreational drug use, the outside still looked good. Mm -hmm. The grades still looked good. Uh, So, you know, for me, it didn't ever seem, and to anyone looking in, it looked like everything was fine. And that just started slow. Like it just started changing. I would say when that really changed was in dental school. It's like I said, I mean, the first semester they prescribed me Adderall, I got the highest GPA in dental school that I had had thus far by this next semester, the lowest. Mm. And I really attribute that to like, I didn't, I realized I could use it for just better things than studying. I was like, Oh, I can, and I'm, I'm a musician. So I started like, just writing music and playing dive bars all the time. Everybody else is like in the books. And I mean, I'm just like, oh, I never have to go to sleep anymore. Mm-hmm. That's what happened. <laughs> so, so I mean, I was kind of living this double life as like a dental student, but I started to get kind of, um, as a child, I was really like, did whatever mom and dad said, 
golden child, want to make them proud, never got in any trouble, this and that. And it's like that rebellious teenager side came out in, out of me when I was in professional school as an adult. And it, looking back on it, it it makes my stomach turn because I was acting like a kid. And like with people in my class were all full adults, some of them with families. And I would do things like skateboard through the hallways, like no joke. And so that just sort of, it was almost like I was regressing emotionally. And that just kind of kept picking up, you know, amphetamines that I'd run out of my prescriptions really early, started buying cocaine off the streets, you know, things like that. And finally, they took away the Adderall. And that's, you know, once, once they did that, and it was, I did a lot of manipulation of doctors. I would pick doctors who I think, who I thought would, I could just give them the outward story. Oh, this guy's, he's a dentist, you know, he's a dental student. He's mm. he dresses nice and he seems like he's got it together. So when I'd say like, oh yeah, I'm having trouble focusing and this and that, like I had a whole manipulative tactic to get things from doctors until later when I had to basically, I was engaged and my fiance was like, you need to go to this doctor and tell her what's going on. And then I did. So like, I, then I had like kind of this, I was sort of cut off. So how did you finish dental school? How? Yeah, like you you must have straightened out enough to <laughs> to to finish dental school and then become a dentist, right? I guess so. I guess you would just say that at the time I had enough I still had enough willpower and enough drugs to get it done, but it was ugly. Mm. Like the that last year. And so the summer before my senior year of dental school, my my younger sister died of a heroin overdose. So that's a big wow. part of the story too, which I'm still exploring the the sure. level of impact that actually has had on me, but that was a pretty significant uptick for me, which to most people would you you know, the normal average person would think that would be a, a sobering time, right? Yeah, like, wow, right. I need to like watch. But I was different than her. Yeah. Because she was a right out of the gate, just sick from adolescence until when she died at 20 years old. Her, her She was one of those addicts that was just full, full out of the gate, explosive, you know, arrests and rehabs and all kinds of stuff. So because I, even though I clearly was abusing all kinds of substances, I just thought I had control over it. Simple as that. So in that, when as the golden child, when she died and my parents had struggled, they did their best with it, but you know, they were they were really, really worn out by her. And um I when she died, I just had this reaction like that are they going to are they gonna die? Are they gonna lose their minds? Like what's gonna happen? Um and so it was kind of like, well, now you really need to like be stoic and perfect. I think that was kind of how I reacted. So I didn't even really emote like hardly at all. I was terrified, quite frankly. Um, and so I didn't grieve. I didn't, you know, and I started having like things like like blow ups at school where I would just like leave. Like I went I got to a class late one time and like the guy wouldn't give you a quiz if you walked in late. And so he looked at me and I was like slammed my bags around and I did, there was a lot of things like that. And, uh, 
Yeah, I know. There was a couple months where I really fell behind, and then I was just like, I gotta, I gotta, I just, something in me was like, I gotta just knock this out and get done. But towards the end of dental school, I mean, when I got, when they gave me my diploma on graduation day and I walked, I was on cocaine, uh, which really stole every bit of the accomplishment. Like, I don't remember feeling accomplished. I remember feeling by that point, like, I remember feeling like drugs gave me an edge. And that's why I used them. In my head, I was using them because I thought I was, it was helping me. You know, I didn't really, I wasn't trying to like be high and have fun all the time. It was like controlling my emotions because I felt like I was just way too sensitive. Starting at that point and then progressively, slowly, but progressively from there, it was like they were my handicap and I gave all the credit to them. Well, I wouldn't have been able to graduate dental school if I didn't have all those drugs. So I'm not enough. And then, you know, from there, it was just like further and further into like, wow, I'm, I'm handicapped by this and I'm nothing without it. When I got out of dental school, I didn't, I wasn't prescribed anything and I was very depressed. So I started this job as a dentist and I, and I always had this idea that when I became a dentist, it was the school, you know, that was the problem. I hated school. Once I become a dentist, I'll, I'll be, I'll have arrived. Mm -hmm. And then I became a dentist and it, no, there was no feeling. Mm -hmm. And it was just, now I have a job and there's, now I have a lot of responsibility and that was it. So I felt very depressed and then I got sick. I remember this. I got sick, like I got a cold with a cough and I went and saw the doctor and they gave me codeine cough syrup. Within one dose of codeine cough syrup, I made two decisions. One was I was going to go back and see that doctor to get back on my Adderall. And two, I was going to record a full-length studio album of music. Because being a dentist wasn't enough, so I had to continue the rock star thing as well. So, And I did both of those things. I got, I went back and saw that doctor and, <laughs> and got, got my Adderall back. And then I, I called the a friend and I made the album <laughs> and I, I wore myself thin like, yeah. as a first year professional. Like it's a, it, like you should be focusing on that. Mm -hmm. And I was every, and my boss at the time, he was trying to help. Like he was like, what are you doing every weekend? Mm -hmm. Cause when I went to the music studio also, by the way, I thought I was Axl Rose. Mm. So I was drinking and smoking. I mean, it was just like awake for 48 hours and then go to work on Monday. And it, I was like rolling in the door. And I did that for a while, you know, and because I could just take more pills and sort of sort of shade it, you know. So that's what it looked like. And then after a couple of years, like every once in a while, I'd be, I would run out of Adderall and I would be like, oh, well, painkillers will just make me feel okay. So I would do it every once in a while. And when I say every once in a while, I was like, well, I can't get in the habit of doing this, you know. And then all of a sudden, uh, I went to an um, outpatient treatment for, I got honest about the Adderall problem with my then fiance and my parents. I, I, I was starting to get worn out and I was like, I need to go to do something about this so I went to um I forget it's uh, Dr. Blank in Duluth she runs a, a pretty cool place but it's outpatient and I but I went in there because I needed to kick an Adderall habit just that so then that's when a switch kind of changed in terms of your 
opiates kind of became your drug of yeah. choice. Okay. And then trying not to do it and then leaving work at lunch. I mean, and then every, anytime my boss would come in and he was in a weird mood, I'm like, uh, oh, he knows. So then he calls you into the office when he's kind of knows what's going on. So two, he called me on a Saturday. Two weeks before that, I was having serious punctuality issues because it was like, it was to the point where I was oversleeping alarms and, I mean, it, my behavior was getting pretty erratic. He was dealing with kind of the punctuality that, you know, like I'm supposed to be a leader, like, hey, we're going to need you, I'm going to give you a chance to resign. You know, you're going to have a few weeks to finish up your cases and like, I signed a contract to resign. And then before that, two weeks had and I didn't have a plan, by the way. Mm-hmm. I thought I would something would, I would just figure something out, but I didn't actually have one. And, and within that two weeks, he he did, did some digging, and that's when he called me and said, "I know everything," and like, you know, you need help. It was a pretty intense conversation. I remember I I, I don't cry very often. I did when he called me and said all of that. I I mean, I broke down hard because I was just there was a part of me that was relieved, mm. uh, probably a big part of me. Because it was like, you know, and I got off the phone, I called my dad, and I was like, you got to come home right now. This is what's going on. I'm gonna, And I had all the pills on the table, and, like, I'm just like, take it away from me. Like, I, I can't do this anymore. So it was, it was awful, and I was terrified, but there was definitely, like, a, you know, weight off of me. So after it's all out there and you feel a little bit of relief, what, what, are, what are the ensuing, you know, how long does it take you to actually get here to Mar? And what are you feeling at that time? Like, are you starting to get concerned about the future and what this all means? Oh, yeah. It took me, I think, from that weekend, it was about a week before I got to Mar. And my parents didn't let me out of their sight. I mean, I detoxed at home. You know, when I got into admissions, it, I think the anxiety set in pretty hard. Um, I remember filling out the form. At, to uh, come here? Yeah, in, uh, in, the, in the admin office. I could hardly fill it out. You know, I also never really, like, filled out things or wrote things down or did any tasks without drugs or alcohol. Hmm. That's a thing. I, I hadn't done that in, in so long. So even, um, And I didn't even realize that I was detoxing from benzos also. Because I wasn't taking them like all the time, but I took them almost every day to sleep. And so I didn't even like mention that to anybody, which That's is... That's a tough detox too. It is. Yeah. yeah. Luckily, I didn't have any complications because that's one of the most risky. I think alcohol sure. and benzos are like two of the most mm-hmm. medically risky detoxes. Um, I just didn't consider right. that as being something I was detoxing from, but certainly I was. So when I got here, it was just like... Total overwhelm, but I had a, I was pretty motivated to like get better and get out of here in 90 days. And when they told, like I, I get into like treatment and they're like, well, you may be here longer than 90 days depending. And I was like, well, how do I make sure that doesn't happen? So I sort of set into this like golden child, like, oh, I'm going to be perfect here. I'm going to say all the right things. I'm going to do all the right things. And then I'll get out on time, which the funny thing was, is that that made them see that I was sicker and I stayed like 120 mm. before I even made it. To, and then I went to three quarters. But yeah, so it was, a, you know, 
I was... I also didn't know what to expect. I, in my mind, rehab was going to be like, for some reason in my mind, it was going to be like a prison barracks. Mm. I thought I was going to sleep in a bunk and we were going to get cafeteria food and, you know, have free time. I thought I was just going to like work out, you know. I, honestly, that's what I th- I thought. I thought I was like, well, I'm just going to get in really good shape when I get right. there. <laughs> <laughs> What's your first impression when you come over? to the men's center and you start meeting people and like what what's going through your head then what i remember about it was i got in a guy's car and they drove me back to the apartments it's like this pretty nice apartment complex in dunwoody and i was like are you serious like it was a lot of relief honestly uh i did i was confused i was like oh i'm in a four-bedroom apartment in the middle of dunwoody like how does this even make sense? Right. You know, it was pretty weird to me because I was like, they just trust us to like come here every day and not go get high. I mean, I, it was weird to me, uh, but I tried to make everyone think I kind of like knew what I was doing because my first community group. So I came in, I think it was a Friday, Thursday or a Friday. And then, so um, then we had the Olympics that weekend, and then on Monday we had our first community, and it was with Matt Irwin, and I hadn't even introduced myself to the community yet, you know, the way we do at Mar, and I started giving people feedback. That was that guy, and Matt looks at me like I was crazy because I, <laughs> you know, and he's like, I'm sorry, who are you? And he was like, why don't you just, like, wait until we get figure out who you are and you just listen to figure out what's going on thank you and i was like man everyone told me this guy was cool he's an asshole you know so how what year was that that you checked in here 2015 so it was uh may my my uh sobriety date is uh may 14th 2015 and i checked in on the 15th okay gotcha you get here you're kind of it sounds like there was kind of a lot going on like with the mar olympics and all that like and so you're you get kind of thrown into it. You have that interaction with Matt. What was then kind of settling into the routine and actually listening and figure like, what was that experience? The first couple of weeks of just figuring out how all this works. It was interesting. It was me not realizing that I was trying to sell everybody on that. I was like better already or doing great. Or I knew, you know, I was I was grateful, I was happy to be here, all these other things, and and also just doing what I didn't realize I had always done, which was like trying way too hard to make people like me. A pretty big moment for me was like three or four weeks in where I just got kind of lambasted by like in feeling school of like them, the whole, all the both of the communities basically saying that they, that I, I thought I was better than everybody. And, uh, that they, no one liked me and all this. It was like, yeah, because of, because of that, because like I was arrogant and all these other things. And I was like, it broke my heart. Must've been hard to hear. It was because that's not what I was trying to do. It's like the opposite of what you're trying to yeah, do. Yeah. I was trying to, I just was going about it all the wrong way. Right. And I was going about it like, oh, if you, and I realized that this is what I had been doing, like the drugs and the alcohol, right? Like if I'm, if I'm the smartest the quickest the you know the most talented all the i thought that if you the more you shined the more people liked you and like that's not true at all 
<laughs> it's like most people are like this guy is like this person is way too much mm-hmm. and they're egotistical and narcissistic and all these other things i didn't understand that concept so i kept doing it and then luckily the community like told me how they felt and i it was very hard and hurtful to hear but i realized that i was like that is starting to break down they're like okay then what do i do to make friends and they're like try listening and talking less try like relating to people and see how that works for you so that's that was a pretty big like starting place for me to like build a community so what was the rest of phase one like for you after hearing that it started getting it was better i mean i feel like i was i was more in it but i needed a lot of reminders at the same time because I would, I remember Matt kept having to tell me that I, I, he kept calling me junior counselor because I would start almost like mirroring some of the things they were doing. And they would be like, this is awesome because they never missed when they, when I was doing stuff like that, they, they didn't, they, they always noticed, you know? And so phase one, it got, it started getting better, but it was very slow for me. I, and I, and slowing me down, I think, uh, you know, uh, Jim Stone is no longer with us at the time. He he told me at one point, I just thought there was no way we were going to be able to slow you down. So I would like have these aha moments, but then it was just like, you know, then I'm like, but, but yeah, but I got to get here. Mm. Um, and then getting into phase two, I had another big moment where I thought everything was good and I was doing all the things I was supposed to and this and that. And I started to become more okay with that it's probably going to be whatever time it is. I started getting more connected to people, but I, I, I went to, uh, went, we went to Quick Trip before we came in tomorrow, which we did every day. And I bought these like QT energy pills. And I was like, I read the label. I'm like, oh, it's just ginseng, mm-hmm. you know? And I was like, I can have these, but I, I'm not going to, I don't, I probably don't need to tell anybody because they'll be splitting airs about this. Mm. So I buy them and then like, I put them in my, I read the back of it and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to think about it. So I put them in my pocket and I like come into Mar and like, I'm talking to people and it was actually Jim Stone again. I, I, and they just fell out on the ground. Right. Like I hadn't taken them. They were, on, they were, but they were in the package, like fell out on the ground. And I, <laughs> like, that was like a pretty serious, like God moment in my opinion. Sure. Where I like, and I picked them up and threw them out. And the next thing I knew I was in Will Atkins office, like, and it was just, I felt like it was kind of like they got, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. just like I've been a bad kid. And even though Will was younger than me, it was just, I was like, you know, I didn't have much to say about it besides I didn't take them, you know. Mm-hmm. And that was a big moment for me because we had a meeting about it and Matt just let me sit. And he basically told me that he was really concerned for me and that the secrecy was a big problem and he made it a big deal and that but that they weren't going to make any decisions till the following week. So I had to sit on that for days and days and days like you know, probably five or six days. Worrying that you're going to get kicked out or... Yeah, what are, what are they going to make me do? Right. So my sponsor was like, like they're probably not going to kick you out. 
they're probably going to either make you start over or they're going to want you to go to three quarters because I think you need, and he was like, I think you need more work anyway. So I went into that meeting and they said, you know, we've reviewed whatever we think you, uh, we want to give you, we're either going to give you the choice to start the program over or go to three quarters, which will you decide? I was like, okay, I'll go to three quarters. <laughs> that was it. They were like, okay. Sounds good. And I think also Matt Irwin said, well, what do you think's changed in the last few days since you did this thing and now we've given you time to think about it? And I started saying something, but I started with, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And then I, I said, I don't know. And then I went, started to go into something else and Matt stopped me and he said, no. Said, what did you just say? And I, I don't know. He's like, yes, I haven't heard you say that. And they, like, at that point, it had been 70 days or something. I haven't yeah. heard you say the words, I don't know, to a question since you've been here. Good job. That's it. And I was like totally confused. Right. You know, I'm pretty sure it was in that same meeting, but I was very confused in that because I had never just understood the concept of like, I don't need to know the answers and I don't have I can like just sort of go off of like these people that are trying to help me for a while and not know what I need to do and I started there mm. that was a big 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 moment for me so uh the, the end of phase two was kind of rough because that was like okay they're gonna have me go to three quarters but then I sat and I told you I was it was 120 days I was in halfway so I was like when are you going to get me over there? And finally, I think they were trying to get me to like, just stop asking and just let the process happen. But I wouldn't. So finally, Matt said to me, he's like, you're going to go on Monday. Is that soon enough for you? Like, it just kind of gives them <laughs> the way I experienced it was like, they almost kind of just gave up. Like they're like, all right, we, I mean, <laughs> we made him wait as long as we could. He's not going to get to where we want him to be. So like, whatever, maybe he'll get there in three quarters. And uh, I, I think I did because I stayed in three quarters for about six months. Hmm. Was there something particular or multiple things, I guess, could be about being in Mar specifically that was helpful for you? I mean, you talk about the value of just time, mm -hmm. you know, but then also during that time, was there something about Mar in particular that you found helpful? Versus, yeah, they know. they taught me the the biggest thing is that they they started teaching me actually how to have a relationship, meaning interpersonal relationships. The value of learning to like really have friends and really to be vulnerable and honest and learn how to relate to people. I didn't even know when I was bullshitting. I've been bullshitting for so long that I I didn't realize that like I was like like BSing myself as well mm -hmm. and that everyone else could see it and they started like feeding it back to me and then I realized when they would call me out on it and I and I'd be like okay and then I would try something different it would I'd like people would respect me more you know or I'd have like and it was like the opposite of what I thought like I would do something like didn't look good necessarily like I'm like I'm admitting mistakes I'm admitting faults and people are like loving me more for that and that was a really cool thing that started happening to where I, I, what I was getting at is that, like, I told my sponsor, like, how do you deal with 
the fact that this the success rate of this disease is like kind of low and now all my friends are going to be recovering drug addicts and alcoholics but only like a quarter or a third of us are going to make it or less and he said you know yeah that's a thing um but when someone dies we do it we go go through that together too and i remember being like oh yeah and so now i've been through plenty of deaths unfortunately and yeah that's exactly how it works you you process it with the community people get closer and um it's the same for everything Mm. what mark gave to me when it came to that is like they literally gave me the community of friends that i'm still close with today i mean three quarters was like the most fun i've ever had really was it was like being in college again but without the drinking I still struggled with the relationships, the female relationship stuff for uh, for a while, but I kept talking about it. That's the thing. I took BBR, you know, I, I kept talking about it. I explored that relationship I couldn't let go of until the point where I realized, oh, wow, I'm actually not into it. <laughs> Yeah, I'm this person is sick and I'm not. And I actually was able to like, I don't think I ever broke up with anybody. Mm -hmm. And I like did that. That was maybe the biggest moment in my sobriety of kind of like letting go of my final obsession, which was like love. Right. Um, And then I was like, I live with four or five of my best friends. I was just okay. Finally, I was like, okay, being I'm like, I'm going to be all right if I'm on my own. And when Mm -hmm. something comes along. Um, that'll be fine. But like, I kind of wore myself out on the love obsession thing. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that was like my final addiction, like letting go almost. I mean, yeah. Wow, man. That's a, that's, I really like how you walked us through that. Cause that's a long, like you said, it's a long process to go through. Like sobriety doesn't happen quick. No, it, I think there's just different levels of it. And I think, you know, you asked me how life's been like, I mean, the reality of it, my life is that it's amazing. You know, I mean, that's the reality of my life. When I say it like that, what I mean is, is like, I have, I mean, I'm married now. I I own a home. I have a good job. Like my things are in order. My relationships are cleaned up. I, I don't have any skeletons in the closet, but I have to work really hard to experience the joy of my life. And I think that's kind of what I, a big point I want to make is like starting there. Like it took me a while to do that. Right. But also like I, if I, I feel like the more things that I'm given, the more like blessings I'm giving, like the harder I have to work to mm. appreciate them also. I continue doing what I did when I learned at Mara, which is processing things because I realized that I can be like addicted or obsessed with just about anything. Yeah. In my first two years of sobriety, it was that woman. And then after that, I got like really into fitness, you know, then that became obsessive and I had to be kind of checked on that. And then like, I got started renting like fancy cars all the time. I was like, it was stuff that was better. Mm -hmm. And, but I had to kind of learn like, oh, and then I feel like I probably like year two or three of sobriety, I, I kind of got hit with a phase of like pretty big low. And I think it was where I, it, I th- when I got out of that hole, I realized that it was that I kind of had come to their awareness that nothing was going to fix me, like things or people. And 
I didn't try to fix it that time. Hmm. So I just sort of sat and kept working on the spiritual side of things and it, and it, cause I was doing all that, but I still think I had was holding on to the belief that, okay, I, if I get this, this, and if I get there, then I'll be all right. And I think I started, I had kind of come to terms with, wow, I'm like a couple of years sober now. And now I'm just, it's just sort of hitting me. Like that isn't going to fix me. So moving forward, like anytime, like I buy a nice thing or I get into a new hobby, I have to be very like cognizant of what my expectations of that thing are going to be. What would you pass on to people that are listening if you had one thing to pass on to them? You really have to do this every day. Matt Irwin said this to me, that you should never have to go back to basics. You should always be doing them. And that's kind of the, that's, that would be kind of a big thing that I would say. And then, and coupled with the longer you stay sober and the more like fruitful your life gets, because it does. Anyone who's gotten sober and worked the program and, and done and stayed close to Mar, things like that, I have not seen anyone's life get worse. It always gets better. Maybe not fast enough or quick enough or exactly how we want it, but it, it, it does. It, and I would say that the more that you get, the, the harder you need to work. And I think that's, that's probably the biggest point I'd like to drive home is that the more your life gets fruitful, the, the more serious you need to take it because you will lose it if you don't. Like, I think it becomes harder to maintain. I, I think that's speaking from where I'm at now, right? Like, I, I have more in my life than I thought that I... I have more in my life, and it just keeps pouring in. And at times, it feels crazy, you know? It's like, it feels it, it feels like too much. Like, I just want to, like, be a sheep herder in the mountain somewhere. So I have to realize that this stuff becomes even more important than when I was, you know, when I was a year sober, it was, it was easy for me. I mean, my life was simpler. I, I went to meetings, I had a schedule, I had more time. I mean, I could just do this stuff and like check the boxes and like, and, and I was okay. I was like safe all the time. Now I'm like out in the world and like running a practice and I've got a wife and bills and a mortgage and it's <laughs> no one's watching <laughs> no one's like keeping track of me anymore i have to let people keep track of me mm -hmm. so i would that would be my my um i know it's like a lot of words to say that like don't hide the further you go the more you're going to need the help and um having that community and nourishing that community probably the most valuable thing that i have because I, I that way i'm i'm always I'm always seen, you know, left to my own devices, I will ruin it. There's no doubt in my mind about that. And I need to be reminded about that all the time. And if I'm not, like, I'm in trouble. So, yeah, that's kind of what I would leave people with, if that, if that works. Oh, that works. That works really well. Brian, thanks so much for doing this, man. I really, really appreciate getting to know you. Yeah, thanks a lot, Matt. I, I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. That's it for this episode of Stories of Recovery. My name is Matt Shedd. Our executive producer is David Tate. If you'd like to reach us, you can email us at podcast at marinc.org. That's podcast at 
M-A-R-R-I-N-C dot O-R-G. Thank you so much for joining us, and we're already looking forward to next time. <laughs>